Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, I want to begin my sermon this morning with a question, and it's up here on the screen. If you had to summarize your entire life in only six words, what would those six words be? Think about that question for a moment. You don't have to answer aloud, but if you had to summarize your entire life in only six words, what would those six words be? Um, some years ago, there was an online magazine that asked readers to respond to that very question. Uh, the question was inspired by a possibly legendary challenge. We don't know if this challenge actually happened or not, but a possibly legendary challenge posed to Ernest Hemingway, the great 20th century writer. Um, allegedly, at some point, somebody approached Ernest Hemingway and challenged him to craft a story in only six words, which Hemingway did. The story was, for sale, baby shoes never worn. While inspired by that supposed challenge posed to Hemingway, this online magazine asked readers to craft their own six-word memoirs, and people did. In fact, the website received so many responses that it almost crashed. And eventually, these responses were compiled, and they were turned into a book. Uh, the name of the book is Not Quite What I Was Planning, Six-Word Memoirs by Writers Famous and Obscure. Not Quite What I Was Planning, Six-Word Memoirs by Writers Famous and Obscure, which, as you could see, was a New York Times bestseller. And so here are some of the memoirs, the six-word memoirs that people submitted, which range from funny to ironic to inspiring to heartbreaking. One tooth, one cavity. Life's cruel. <laughs> Savior complex makes for many disappointments, and we can imagine why that would be. Curse with cancer, blessed with friends. And that particular one was written by a nine-year-old boy with cancer. The psychic said I'd be richer. This one was only five words. One long train to darkness. Tombstone won't say, had health insurance. Not a good Christian, but trying. And then finally one more, thought I would have more impact. Well, summarizing an entire human life in just a few words is pretty much impossible, isn't it? It's a Herculean task. And yet somehow, by the grace of God, that's what we're going to do this morning in this message. We're going to summarize an entire human life. Only get this, we're not simply going to summarize any ordinary person's life. Instead, we're going to summarize the life of the most important human being who has ever walked our planet, and without question, that would be who? Jesus. And so last Sunday morning, our congregation here at Asbury um, started this new sermon series called Credo. We have the graphic up here on the screen. Um, credo is a Latin word that simply means, I believe. And in this sermon series, we are exploring the most important of our beliefs, which is our belief about God and our belief about the Christian faith. And our guide in these conversations and these messages is the Apostles' Creed, uh, what we recited earlier um, in the service today. One of the great creeds of the church, one of the oldest creeds of the church, that beautifully outlines what Christians for centuries 
for pretty much two millennia, since the time of the apostles, those first followers of Jesus. But what Christians for centuries have believed and taught about God and the Christian faith. And so last week, as we got into this new series, we began with the first article of the Apostles' Creed. It's up here on the screen. Let's read this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And so what we did last week is we unpacked the significance, the importance of this first article, what this first article teaches us about God the Father. God the Father is the first person of the Trinity or the Godhead. And so this morning, as we continue our journey through the Apostles' Creed, we come to the very next article, which talks about Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity or the Godhead. Uh, let's read this together. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Is anybody out of breath right now? This second article is by far the largest, the biggest section of the entire Apostles' Creed. In fact, I got curious this week, and so I did the math, and I hope my math is right. But this second article makes up almost 62%. So not even simply half, but almost 62% of the Apostles' Creed. To put it simply, almost 62% of the Apostles' Creed is devoted specifically and entirely to Jesus, this man who lived some 2,000 years ago. And if we think about this, it's really not that surprising or shocking because laying aside the Apostles' Creed for a moment, just for a moment, we'll come back to it in a few minutes, but even if you don't consider yourself a Christian, it's hard to deny the significance of Jesus, isn't it? For instance, when people curse nowadays, not that anybody here has ever cursed, but when other folks curse, whose name do they scream out? Have you ever heard of somebody stubbing his toe and then yelling out, Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> Benjamin Franklin? Or have you ever heard of somebody playing a game of golf and they miss their shot and they scream out, Isaac Newton, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci? No, they yell out the name Jesus, this Jewish peasant who lived so many years ago. More songs have been inspired by Jesus. More artwork has been created of Jesus. More books have been written about Jesus than any human being who has ever existed. Heck, even our global calendar is divided by the year before his birth and after his birth. You have B.C. What does B.C. stand for? Before Christ and A.D. Do you know what A.D. means? All right, some of you do. It comes from a Latin phrase uh, that I'm not sure if I can pronounce it right now. But it basically means in the year of our Lord. And so what divides B.C. from A.D. is the birth of Jesus. Hey, this uh, speaker just came on. All right. But what, this, but what divides B.C. from A.D. is the birth of Jesus. Or think about some of our most well-known American cities. For example, Charlie Rao. You're from San Antonio, aren't you? Or my wife Amanda. She's from San Diego. Or think about San Francisco. Who are these cities named after? Saints. Who are saints? People who followed Jesus. Um, I love what Yale historian Haroslav Pelikan, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, um, he passed away back in 2006. He taught at Yale University. Check out what he said about Jesus. 
in one of his books. He says, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible, with some sort of supermagnet, and so just kind of envision that magnet, some sort of supermagnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? How much would be left? The answer is not much, pretty much nothing. For years, Time Magazine has named a person of the year on its January cover. Uh, Time Magazine has done this for a long time. Well, back in 2013, the editors of Time decided to change things up a bit. They decided to identify the most significant human being who has ever lived. And so they did an exhaustive analysis, and they ranked historical figures like Google ranks web pages. They looked at figures like Alexander the Great, Napoleon Bonaparte, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, all these figures that we learned about in school. Do you want to guess who came out on top? Jesus. And it wasn't even close. So going back to the Apostles' Creed, it's really not that surprising or shocking that the Apostles' Creed would spend so much time talking about Jesus, just given the significance of Jesus. And yet what makes the Apostles' Creed stand out is that the Apostles' Creed doesn't simply say that Jesus was an important human being who had an impact on history. Rather, the Apostles' Creed affirms what the New Testament teaches, that this man Jesus, who lived 2,000 years ago, he wasn't simply a good teacher or a leader among the people of God or a miracle worker or a wise sage. Rather, he was God incarnate. He was God in the flesh. He was God with skin on. Check out again this first line of this second article of the Apostles' Creed as it speaks about Jesus. It says, And in Jesus Christ, his, that would be God, his only Son, our Lord. Now, wait a minute. The Apostles' Creed says that Jesus is God's only Son, but aren't you and I children of God? Aren't we sons and daughters of God? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Isn't that what we affirm here at Asbury all the time? So why does the Apostles' Creed say that Jesus is God's only Son? Well, Jesus is God's only Son in the sense that he's the only begotten Son. You know what the word begotten means? Begotten basically means two things. Number one, Jesus wasn't created. And by the way, doesn't John 3.16 say this? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Well, begotten means two things. Number one, Jesus was not created as you and I were created. In other words, Jesus has always existed. There's never been a time in which Jesus has not existed. In fact, in the, um, in the song, We'll Come All Ye Faithful, which we sing at Christmas, what do we say? He was begotten, not created. And so it means, number one, he wasn't created. And then number two, that Jesus is of the same essence and the same substance as God. That what God the Father and God the Spirit have that make God the Father and God the Spirit God, Jesus Christ the Son has that too. And thus the early Christians, and they're theologizing about Jesus, they affirmed at the Council of Nicaea, which meant in 325 AD, that Jesus is homoousion. We have this up here on the screen. Homoousion. You ever heard that term before? If you want to impress your friends at lunch today, drop that term in the conversation. Homoousion 
derives from two Greek words, homo, which means same, and usia, which means substance or essence. In other words, Jesus and God are of the same essence, the same substance. And again, the creed and the early Christians, they weren't saying anything that the New Testament doesn't teach. For example, listen with me to these words that God inspired the Apostle Paul to write in Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 5 and 6. And by the way, a lot of scholars are convinced that these words are not original to Paul, that Paul was actually quoting here an early Christian hymn that predated himself. And so this is probably one of the first hymns of the church, maybe came out uh, just a few years after Jesus. Uh, Paul writes, uh, Philippians 2, uh, beginning in verse 5, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And then he says in verse 6, though he was who? Though he was God. Not though he was similar to God, though he was like God. He says, though he was God, uh, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. And if that's not enough, listen to these words uh, from the gospel writer uh, John, uh, my favorite writer in scripture. This is what John pens in the opening of his gospel, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, the Word, and when John says Word, he's talking about Jesus, the Word already existed. So going back to Genesis 1, God is speaking the universe into being. God didn't create Jesus because Jesus, the Word, he already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was who? The Word was God. And then skipping down to verse 14, John says, so the Word, that is Jesus, became human and made his home among us. As Eugene Peterson says in his prayer phrase of this passage, um, God pitched his tent and moved into our neighborhood. God became human in Jesus Christ. Theologians call this event the incarnation. That's what we celebrate every Christmas. That as human beings, you and I, we were lost in sin and brokenness and destruction of our own choosing, our own volition, and yet God lovingly came after us. God wrote himself into our story. Uh, this woman who you see up here on the screen, her name is Dorothea Sayers. Anybody ever read a book before by Dorothea Sayers? Okay, Barbara, you have? Uh, she was a famous British novelist, um, lived back in the 1920s, the 1930s, almost 100 years ago, and she wrote a series of detective novels. Anybody into detective novels? Well, the main character in her novels is this guy by the name of Lord Peter Whimsey, which is a fun name to say, Lord Peter Whimsey. Lord Peter Whimsey, he is a brilliant detective. He's kind of like Sherlock Holmes. He solves mysteries for his own amusement. But unfortunately, in the first half of the series, I mean, yeah, he's a brilliant detective, but he's also a bachelor, he's lonely, and out of that loneliness, he has a lot of struggles and just uh, things that he does to harm himself. But then what happened in the second half of the series is that Sayers introduced another character named Harriet Vane. And so Harriet Vane and Peter end up falling in love. And out of that love, Harriet Vane brings healing to Peter. Now what's interesting is, people have pointed out that Harriet Vane, the character, and Dorothea Sayers, the writer, have a lot of similarities. For example, in the series, Harriet Vane, the character, she's a mystery writer. That's her profession. What was Dorothea Sayers in real life? Mystery writer. She wrote detective novels. In the series, Harriet Vane is one of the first women to graduate from Oxford University. 
In real life, Dorothea Sayers was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford University. And so this is brilliant. What Sayers did is she looked at Peter, this character whom she had created, uh, fallen in love with, this broken shell of a man, and as the author, as the creator, as the writer, wrote herself into the story to bring healing to Peter. That's what God did in Jesus Christ. God wrote himself into our story to bring us healing. That healing began at the incarnation, at Christmas time, when Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. But that healing didn't stop there, did it? Because as the Apostles' Creed tells us, this same Jesus who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, what happened to him? He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Notice how quickly the Apostles' Creed shifts from the birth of Jesus to the death of Jesus. There's no mention of Jesus' public ministry. There's nothing about his Sermon on the Mount, nothing about his miracles or his parables or anything like that. Just born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The Creed moves from Christmas to Good Friday, skipping 33 years of life in between. And listen, that is not to downplay all that happened before the cross. That is simply to elevate how important the cross was. The cross, this is really important, the cross was not simply a divine afterthought. God was not caught off guard or surprised by the cross. Rather, the cross was the culmination of Jesus' life and ministry. That's where all this was headed toward. Listen with me to what the gospel writer Luke says in Luke chapter 9 as he speaks about Jesus. This is verse 51 of Luke 9. As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, and so Jesus ultimately, he was going to return to heaven. As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus what? Resolutely set out for Jerusalem. What is the significance of Jerusalem? What happened there? That's where Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples. That's where Judas betrayed him later on that night as he was in the garden. That's where Jesus was arrested. He was put on trial by Pontius Pilate and uh, the religious leaders before that. That's where he was crucified. All that happened in Jerusalem. And notice, by the way, that this passage we just read, that's in Luke chapter 9. Luke is 24 chapters long, so we're about a third of the way through the Gospel of Luke, and already pretty early on in Luke, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. I love that word resolutely, by the way. That's where we get our word resolution. Think about New Year's resolutions. Has anybody kept their New Year's resolutions? Jesus kept his resolution. He resolutely set out to go there. In other words, Jesus was determined to be crucified. Nothing was going to stand in his way. As I was working on this sermon, and folks, sometimes I have way too much fun working on sermons, uh, I came across a story about this guy named Ali, A-L-I, Ali. And he's known by his friends as Crazy Ali. Isn't that a great nickname, Crazy Ali? And the reason this guy is called Crazy Ali is he is crazy about soccer. He is insane about soccer. He loves soccer, and he is passionate about the team that he supports. But because of a misdemeanor that he incurred at a game, probably because he got too rowdy, who knows, maybe alcohol was involved, he was banned from the sports stadium 
for a period of one year. So what was he going to do? Well, on the day that his favorite team was scheduled to play against their rival, this guy rented a crane. We have a picture of this. That's a true story. He rented a crane. <laughs> he lifted the crane up as high as it would possibly go so that he could watch into the stadium as his team played soccer. This guy was determined to watch his team play, and nothing was going to stop him. And in a similar sense, Jesus was determined to be crucified. That's why the New Testament emphasizes the cross so much. The cross was a part of the overarching narrative of love that God was writing to the human race in Jesus. Now, shifting gears for a second, in another version of the Apostles' Creed, now, we don't typically recite as United Methodist. Other churches recite this line, but, but we don't typically recite it. As soon as it says that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, right before it speaks about the resurrection, this is what it says. He descended to the dead. How many of you came from a church before you came to Asbury where you said that line? Or how many of you grew up in a church saying that part of the Apostles' Creed? Okay, some of you have. Now, again, we as United Methodists don't typically recite that line, and there are different theories as to why this is. We don't have time to get into all the theories this morning. One theory is, is that it wasn't a part of the earliest version of the Apostles' Creed, and so John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, he was kind of reluctant when it came to including it. What I do want to emphasize this morning is just because we don't recite this particular line doesn't mean that it doesn't carry truth. It does. Jesus did descend to the dead. That even as you and I will one day die, that Jesus himself died. Uh, my church history professor, uh, Warren Smith, this is what he says about that. He said, descending to the dead means there is no part of human existence to which Jesus Christ did not descend. But some of the early Christians, not all of them, but some of the early Christians took it a step further. And that's why other versions of the Apostles' Creed have this line. Some of the early Christians said that not only did Jesus die, not only did he descend to the dead, but before the resurrection on Easter Sunday, Jesus went to the one place that no human being ever wants to go. Hell. Why did he go to hell? He went to hell to preach to those who were trapped inside so they too could experience the saving love of God in Jesus Christ. The early Christians, those who believed this, refer to this idea as the harrowing of hell. Uh, this is some artwork about that concept, the harrowing of hell. What does it mean to harrow something? That's not a word that we use very much these days. Basically, I looked it up online, to harrow something means to cause distress, to cause anguish, to cause affliction, that Jesus caused distress to hell, that there were people in hell, according to the early Christians, who never got to know in the depth of who they were, God's love, God's grace, God's forgiveness, and Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus did before the resurrection, he himself went to hell to preach to them and to liberate them. The inspiration for this idea comes from an obscure passage uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3. It's up here on the screen. Listen to what the apostle Peter says in verses 18 through 20. And again, this is the inspiration behind this idea of the harrowing of hell. Christ suffered for our sins, once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the Spirit. So he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Those who disobeyed God long ago, when God waited patiently 
while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. How many people were saved in the story of Noah? Eight. Who were they? Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their three daughters-in-law. Nobody else was saved. And so what about all those people who died in the flood? Or what about all those people who died after the flood, having never known Jesus Christ? Well, moved by this particular passage, some of the early Christians said that Jesus went to hell to preach to them and give them that opportunity to repent and to come into God's saving love. Now, I will say this, that whether that's what this particular passage in 1 Peter is actually talking about, that is up for debate. I mean, scholars have written books and articles and just um, so many words about this because not everybody is in full agreement. Again, this is kind of an obscure passage. Me personally, I like to think that it happened because to me that's in keeping with the God that we've come to know in Jesus Christ, that we have a God who in Jesus will stop at nothing to be with us. When I think of the harrowing of hell, I think about the story that I read earlier this week about um, this uh, woman and her son. Uh, they lived in Oregon. Actually, this happened just two months ago. So this mom and her son, they were playing outside, and the son was kind of off in the distance. The mom was over here. And all of a sudden, there was this guy, this man who ran up, and he tried to abduct a child. He just picked the little boy up, and he began to run off with him. And so this mom, she saw what was going on, and she ran after the man as fast as she possibly could, but the guy went into an apartment building, and then he abruptly shut the door, and he locked it. So this mom runs up to the door. Meanwhile, there were some neighbors in the apartment, and then they saw what was going on, how this man had just taken this child, and so they all began to go up to the door. The door was locked. You know what they did? They just started beating down the door collectively as hard as they possibly could until that door was finally broken down. And that man got scared, he ran out the back door, and he got away. Eventually, the police arrested him. But that child was safe. That mom and those neighbors harrowed that door to get to that little boy. Jesus harrowed hell, according to some of the early Christians. We have a God who, in Jesus, will stop at nothing to be with us. In just a few moments, we're going to sing this song called Reckless Love by Corey Asbury. It came out about five years ago, 2017. Uh, this is, uh, these are some of the lyrics from that song. There's no shadow you won't light up. Mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, no lie you won't tear down, coming after me. There's nothing God won't do to come after us. Then the last half of the second article of the Creed says this. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Now just real quickly, the three concepts being talked about here are the resurrection, the ascension, and the second coming of Jesus. That Jesus is not only the incarnate one, he's not only the one who became a human being at Christmas time, he's not only the crucified one, but he's also the resurrected one, the one who rose from the grave on Easter Sunday, thereby defeating evil and sin and death forever. He's the ascended one, the one who ultimately returned back to God the Father Almighty. And finally, he's the one who will come again one day in the future. 
to judge those of us who are alive, that would be the quick, and those of us who have died, and bring his kingdom work to completion. All that he started when he initially came among us. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what the Apostles' Creed teaches about Jesus. And as important as all this teaching is that we just talked about, when it comes down to it, this teaching is meant to be joined by personal experience. That Jesus' desire is not simply that we will properly know about him. Jesus' desire is that we will know him. That we will open up our hearts and experience his love, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. All that is coming makes possible. If anybody knew not just about Jesus, but really knew Jesus intimately, it was the Apostle Paul who wrote over half the New Testament. Well, there's a story, it's not in the Bible, but it kind of circulated. I'm not sure where it came from, so take it for what it is. But the story goes that there was this wealthy merchant in the Mediterranean world who had heard about the Apostle Paul. And he really wanted to meet with this man, this, this former Pharisee turned Christian who was having such an impact And so he was able to get in touch with Timothy, one of Paul's disciples, and Timothy arranged a visit between Paul and this man. Now, Paul was in prison at the time. He was in Rome where he was awaiting his fate. And so the man walked inside this prison cell, and he saw Paul, who was frail, he was old, he was in bad shape, and yet he was so exuberant and just full of life and joy. It was electric And so the man and Paul, they talked for hours and hours and hours and hours, and then finally Paul prayed over the man before he finally left. So he was reflecting on that visit with Timothy, and the man said to Timothy, wow, that guy Paul, I mean, he really inspired and challenged me. What's his secret? And Timothy said, don't you get it? Paul's in love. And the man said, what? In love? In love with who? In love with Jesus. Is that all? The man asked. No, Timothy said. That's everything. Knowing Jesus is everything. Absolutely everything. There's nothing else like it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, I remember when I came to know your love in Jesus in such an intimate way as a teenager. There really is nothing else like it. To open up our hearts to experience the transformation that your coming makes possible. Thank you, God, that you wrote yourself into our story, that even when we screwed up and we sinned and we rebelled, that you didn't say to hell with humanity, but instead, you came after us. You pursued us all the way to the cross and the empty tomb. And you continue to pursue us by the Holy Spirit's power. I pray that if there's anybody here in worship this morning who has never said yes to the great love of Jesus Christ, that even now as I say these words, 
that your Holy Spirit would simply prompt that person to say, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your gift. Thank you for your coming. Please enter in. Be the Savior and the Redeemer that I so desperately need. And I pray that this morning that all of us who have already made that commitment, that we would recommit ourselves to you as your Holy Spirit works within us, helping us to allow others to experience the great love of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.